You're listening to The Upland Rookie, a podcast presented by Upland Brits, B Pro Kennels, and Final Rise. Big thanks to our title sponsor, B Pro Kennels. B Pro Kennels is a small business creating ultra high quality and custom dog boxes for the gun dog owner like you and I. No matter how big your string of dogs, B Pro Kennels will make sure you have a box that fits your needs for you and your gun dogs. With an innovative storage design and built in solar panel and battery bank for quick access to charging accessories like dog collars, lights, fans, you name it. This is a dog box unlike anything you've seen before. Check them out at bprokennels.com. Oh, and they're made right here in the USA. This podcast is also presented to you by Final Rise. All good things start with a solid foundation. At Final Rise, all three of their premium Upland vests are built around the foundational waist belt to provide you all-day comfort and endless customization. With a secure waist belt and thin, high-quality shoulder harness, this is the vest that you can load down with birds and walk all day in. Final Rise is creating high-functioning Upland gear that delivers comfort, balance, and a lifetime of memories. Check them out at finalrise.com. And this podcast is sponsored by Trinity Bretons, home of the Epignol Breton, also known as the French Brittany. All Trinity Breton dogs are from champion bloodlines that are field-tested and family-approved. For over 33 years, Trinity Bretons has worked to offer you the best bred Epignol Breton in the country. Trinity offers puppies, the Trinity Upland Academy with George Hickox, started dogs, stud services, and a whole lot more. Check them out at trinitybretons.com. And don't forget about the fall kickoff giveaway happening over at patreon.com. Become a Patreon supporter for as little as $5 a month and not only helping support the podcast, but you will be entered into the giveaway, including prizes from Cable Gangs, Upland Knife Company, and Gunner Kennels. Check it out and become a Patreon member today at patreon.com slash the Upland Rookie podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Upland Rookie Podcast. I'm your host, Will Larson, and this is episode 56 with Jeff Ryder of Trinity Kennels. I'm going to get into more of our conversation here in just a second and set the stage. Um, Well, you know what? I might as well do that now because I've already brought it up. So uh, I'm chatting with Jeff Ryder here today of Trinity Kennels, and I have already talked with his son, Josh, several episodes back. Uh, I think episode 24, uh, we do a deep dive just into Trinity Kennels as a whole, uh, some of the, the stuff that they have going on over there, some of their dogs, talk a lot about moose. But Jeff and I on this episode, um, we do a much deeper dive into breeding and specifically COI, coefficient in breeding breeding versus line breeding. And we get into the weeds pretty deep into uh, the breeding philosophy and methods, uh, not only that Trinity is using, but um, Jeff has just been a wealth of knowledge um, here um, that I've gotten to know for several years now. And uh, him and Josh both um, just have such experience and a really, really um, awesome way to communicate with new dog owners and people who are just interested or have questions. And so I really, really appreciate um, this conversation with Jeff, I told him before the podcast, I said, the whole COI and coefficient inbreeding, line breeding, it, it was kind of a black hole to me. It, it seemed a little more intense and it still kind of is. 
Um, but so I was like, how, how can we break this down for regular people like me and you to understand? And, uh, I think he did a fantastic job of being able to unpack and break down, um, some of the breeding methods and, uh, even some bloodlines and genetics and a whole bunch of stuff. You guys are, I think are really going to enjoy this one. Um, we also do kind of a rabbit hole, uh, sidetrack into training and some of the things they have going on with the, uh, Trinity Upland Academy with George Hickok. So, um, I, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. So that's what is coming up. But I have uh, a little bit of an intro to do first. Um, just to get this out of the way, don't forget to sign up on patreon.com uh, to be a Patreon supporter. Uh, as little as five bucks a month will get you into all the giveaways, get your name in the hat two times. Uh, if you want to up it to the mid tier, they'll get your name in the hat, I think five times. And the upper tier will get your name in the hat for all drawings. 10 times. So some really cool opportunities. There's not a ton of Patreon members yet, which is nice for you guys because your chances of winning um, are still very, very high. So I'm going to be drawing the winner and announcing the name on September 1st. So uh, get your uh, Patreon membership in or become a Patreon member uh, in the month of August and you will be entered into the giveaway. So there's three prizes up for grabs still, Cable Gangs, Tie Out System, a knife from Upland Knife Company, and a Gunner Fan Kit 2.0. So some Awesome. Awesome prizes still up for grabs. Go over to Patreon. Um, okay. One thing I said I would do on last week's episode um, is talk about some puppy stuff, <laughs> some puppy info, uh, some things that I have, um, again, just personal things that I've learned along the way. Um, I talked a little bit about this way back when maybe episode two or three or something like that. Um, so I got a new puppy. His name is Mac. He is doing well. He's a, he's a little fireball right now. Um, he's nine and a half, maybe 10, I think he'll be 10 weeks old, maybe tomorrow. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, he's, he's doing well. And I think it's important as a reminder, I know a lot of people pick up dogs either in the fall or the spring. It depends. I typically will pick up dogs in the fall, it seems like. I don't know why. It just kind of happens that way. <laughs> Might not be ideal, but I got one in the summer, which this works out kind of well. Um, so a couple things I want to go over with puppies again, maybe this is helpful for you. Maybe it's not, if it doesn't interest you, just skip to the interview, but I'm going to give you a bullet point list of a couple of things that I am working on with Mac right now. And I'm not really doing anything besides what's on this list. Um, you don't need to make this more complicated than it is. You don't need to stress yourself out. Don't need to stress your dog out. <laughs> and so, uh, it may seem pretty simple. You might get through my list that you hear and go, that's it. That's all you're doing. Yep. <laughs> that is all I'm working on right now. So uh, a couple things, uh, someone actually just asked me this question recently was, uh, how to introduce the dog, the puppy to older dogs, uh, bird intro, food, crate training, potty training, uh, hear command with the clicker. Um, so those are kind of the things that I am focusing on with the new puppy. Again, this is kind of a, a plan that I've, I've set for myself, for my dogs, and it has, has worked well <laughs> in the past. Um, so this is kind of what I'm following with Mac as well. Now, again, with every stage and as they get older, this will change. But when I'm thinking brand new puppy first, I don't know, month or two, I don't know. Again, this is kind of loosely. Um, this is kind of the things I'm focusing on. So introducing to older dogs, um, you don't want to stress the puppy out and you don't want to just turn them loose and turn the older dogs loose in the room and let them have at it. Um, pup's going to get kind of freaked out. They're, they're big dogs. It's new environment. Again, you just have to take the puppy into consideration. This is all new for him. He just, he left his litter mates, left his whatever, 
his environment he was used to. So it's all going to be new. So, so keep that in mind in all these things that you consider with a new puppy. So um, what I did with Mac was um, I introduced him to win engage separately one at a time. And I actually held win engage. Um, so I held gauge by the collar, just kind of petted him and let Mac kind of sniff him around. And he was curious. Then he walked away. Then he came back. Did that for a little bit once Gage was settled and comfortable. The puppy seemed comfortable. And then I let Gage, you know, loose. He went and sniffed Mac a little bit. They kind of ran around and it was kind of no big deal. It was kind of a non-event. It wasn't this huge ordeal. It was, you know, they got to sniff each other. Gage was like, all right, who's who's this young guy? <laughs> Can he point birds? Cool. He's on the team. And um, did the same thing with Wynn separately and I, th- I think of only a couple times they've been all together because again they can get pretty rowdy but he's he's been old enough now we've had him long enough where you know i can have all three of them running around in the garage and it is no big deal so again a non-event just make it casual just make sure the puppy doesn't get trampled um okay a couple more things bird intro so bird intro i am no expert on official bird intro for things but um i I talked with Jeff Hoskins about this on the podcast a while back. Um, I, I like to see a puppy point early. Um, I, I like to see that in a young pup. I like to know that they have that instinct in them very young. Does not mean if your dog does not point early that they're not going to point. I, I don't believe that. Um, but I have done wing on a string. I've done it twice with Mac and he's pointed really nice both times. So, I know there's lots of thoughts and opinions on that. Some I've heard some people say it'll ruin a, ruin a dog. I again, I don't believe it to be true. Maybe if you do it a hundred times, maybe it's going to cause some issues or problems down the road. But one or two times when they're really really young, I don't think is a big problem. Um, again, I like to see that point. I like um, to see what they'll do with that uh, wing scent. Um, and if they see it a little bit too, that's that's fine. That's part of the th- uh, part of the game. So um, again, I've done that. Uh, now I'm going to be working with Jeff a lot more on uh, introing live birds and what that looks like. But then again, that won't be for a little while. Um, he has seen our, our pigeon coop and chicken coop and all that, but and he seemed great with it. Um, okay. Food crate training, potty training. So potty training, this is a, a kind of a big one is um, oh, potty training. Biggest advice I, I guess I could give with potty training is take up water a little bit before bed, like a few hours before bed. So we'll take it up maybe two hours at least before bedtime. And it really, really helps the potty training. Um, it helps the overnight time period. You still have to get up, let him out of his crate, all that good stuff. But um, if you're letting him guzzle water <laughs> up until 30 minutes before you put him in his crate for the uh, nighttime, um, you're going to be up in another little bit, letting him out like in another hour because he's going to fill up his bladder. And he's going to have to pee. So uh, just be smart and strategic about uh, when you're offering your dog water. Again, if you're going out for three, four hours, uh, maybe don't offer him a ton of water an hour and a half before you go. Um, so again, just be strategic about it. Um, and just consistency. You got to be consistent with let, letting him out. Uh, I've been setting alarms for myself still. Um, he's, he's doing fairly well. He's had a few accidents here and there, but um, cause I've overslept <laughs> through my alarm. So set yourself some alarms, be consistent and, uh, just be conscious about the water. Um, crate training. So crate training is a big one. I love to start that pretty early. Again, um, it's kind of similar to the here command with the clicker. So all cl- uh, crate training I'm doing as I'm, uh, once they go in their crate, they get a click on the clicker and a treat at the same time. Um, 
uh, uh, these dogs are, are den animals and they, for them to have a, a safe, quiet space for them to kind of retreat and relax in uh, their crate is really, really key. And so, you know, we got a bunch of kids running around our house when I'm at work during the day. So if he's not in his dog run, my wife will put him in the crate and it's a spot that he knows he can be calm and safe and he gets food in there. Um, it's a really important thing for a dog to learn. And, you, you know, you want a dog that can go in the crate and learn to, you know, settle. It's time to settle down. Yeah, you're going to cry for a little bit and whine, but... You know, if you're consistent and don't let him out when he's he's whining, Mac has picked up very, very quickly that crate is cool, like chill time. It's it's not time to freak out. Um, sure, the first couple of days he howled his little butt off, but um, you know, week and a half in, he picked it up pretty quick that he's not getting out if he if he howls and cries and all that stuff. So, um, you know again a crate is just a safe spot for them for them and for you you know they're not going to get in trouble they're not going to chew things they're not going to eat things that they're not supposed to um if you're not able to watch the puppy and be with them uh focused you know put them in the crate or if you have ability to put them in a dog run you know do that but um highly highly recommend you know getting them crate trained get them used to the crate uh get them used to the crate sorry i can't talk sometimes um so just yeah i, I can't say that enough um so beating a dead horse. Um, same with here. I, I already have started uh, the recall command here. Again, same thing with the clicker and treat. Mac here. He comes in my hand, gets his treat, click on the clicker. Really simple. It's just marking that behavior. Um, some people say, well, why don't you just say good or good boy? Where to go, Mac? Um, the clicker is just, it doesn't change. The clicker has no emotion behind it. <laughs> the clicker is the same every single time and so no matter if you're having a good day bad day i don't say anything i just treat click treat click um every time he uh, does the behavior i want and so it's just marking that behavior so that's why i use the clicker um it's a pretty effective tool i know standing stone kennels has a bunch of videos online and on youtube um, of how to do the clicker training properly what it does what it isn't um, all that good stuff so check out them if you want to go deeper and more info on the clicker uh, but i am a big believer in it and um, i think we talked about that a little bit on this podcast episode with jeff Ryder as well so um that's about it guys that's kind of the the puppy stuff that i'm focusing on um again i'm just trying to enjoy it right now i mean he's gonna be coming with me um on our first hunt in the beginning of september and uh it, you know, he's gonna be learning a lot of new things. And so getting him used to the crate, getting him consistent on his food, um, recall, like all those things, again, it's not going to be, you know, perfect by any means. He's going to whine a little bit in the crate. He's not going to listen to his name sometimes. I get that. Um, but it's just preparing him, getting him used to some of these things that he's going to be needing to do in life. And so coming along on a hunt, um, obviously he's not going to hunt whatsoever, um, but he's going to learn how to travel well. He's going to learn how to be on a cable gang tie out system. He's going to learn all sorts of things, just being along for the ride. So um, expose your dogs appropriately in the appropriate time. Don't rush things and just enjoy it. Just enjoy the time that you have with your dog when they're little. Take lots of pictures like kids. Uh, take lots of pictures as they are young because um, they'll go by fast. They're going to be a bird machine out in the field, you know, doing all the, all the cool stuff very, very soon. Um, so really I'm just focusing on him being a good citizen, adapting to our house, our rules, all that kind of good stuff. So hopefully that was helpful um, to anyone who is still listening to this 15 minute intro. Um, I hope hopefully that, uh, again, hopefully you learned something. Maybe you have a, a new dog you picked up or maybe 
um, you're picking one up soon. So anyways, we're going to jump in to the episode with Jeff Ryder of Trinity Bretons, and I hope you guys enjoy. Well, we'll kind of jump in here, Jeff. Um, first off, uh, put us on a map. Where are you talking to us from? And would you mind telling uh, the listeners a little bit of who you are? Sure. Um, we are located in Otley, Iowa, which most listeners will have never heard of. Um, it's located just outside of Pella, Iowa, which may get us a little closer to somebody who knows where we are. Um, but if you threw a dart at the state of Iowa, we're just, just southeast of the center. Okay. Um, so just southeast of Des Moines. Um, who we are, uh, I am Jeff Ryder. I um, started Trinity Kennels 33 years ago. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go forward. Um, but uh, yeah, been, uh, my career has been in manufacturing management and uh, change management. Um, and so my dogs have always been an aside for me. Um, you know, the safe place, the place where you go to unwind after work, whatever. So I've uh, done it for a long time, had them for a long time and really enjoyed them. Um, as far as our kennel goes, kennel is located on our property. It's in the country. Um, so we have room to work the dogs there, but we also have several locations that we uh, lease. So we have other places to work the dogs as well uh, throughout the year. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've, I've been out to your property and it's, it's beautiful. It is yeah. summertime, corn's up. It's, it's yeah. a little slice of heaven right there. Yeah, it is. It's it fun. Is. It is nice. Hey, I got to ask uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, you guys hosted, uh, is it your second Trinity Upland Academy? Is that right? Yeah, actually we did. Um, we just did 10 days straight with uh, one of our friends and mentors, George Hickox, um, training mostly our customers. There are a few people um, that join that are not that have a, another breed or from another kennel, but want the training anyway. Yeah. So the weekend, sorry, I'm going to just a minute to catch a uh, picture of the calendar. So the 10th, 11th, and 12th um, was actually a, it's kind of like the advanced class that we teach. So, um, okay, you know, so we set it up so that year one you come and what do I do with my dog from puppy to X, you know, eight, 12 months of age. And then the next year we say, okay, now what do we do from here? How do we finish them out? And that was the second weekend. Then in between, um, Josh and myself and a couple of uh, good friends, they've become, you know, they, they start out as clients and now they're around a lot. Um, they came to both. And in between, we also worked all of our kennel dogs and all their dogs with George as well. So, Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, so George, yeah. George has stayed out there the whole time. Yeah. George oh. stays at our house. We have a very cool we have an old farmhouse, but the basement is very cool. And we've kind of made one room into a, my wife calls it a bungalow. It's a little bedroom with a couch in it and so on and so forth, uh, living space. And yeah, he just, when he comes out, he just stays. So <laughs> that's fantastic. So you've kind of set this up. You're, it sounds like you're kind of set up almost two tracks, right? Like a, a, yeah. a new, newer track and then a little bit more advanced track. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, and um, it's really interesting because I also talked to George about our kennel as a business as well. Um because he's been doing it his whole life, you know, and he's kind of, he's always, you know, things like, what are you offering? Why are you offering it? What are your customer asking for? You know, so very, he and I can have good discussions on that being a businessman. And, but one, you know, one of the things we noticed the first year is that the beginning is really good, but a lot of people would come to the class and then 
the beginning for most dogs probably ends eight, nine, 10 months. Didn't know where to go from there. Mm. So I took my dog through this training. What now? Mm. Um, and some people, you know, they want to do tests. Um, you know, we do mostly field trials and tests. We do some shows, but we have customers that do NAVDA, NASTRA, sure. AKC, UKC. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about moose at some time, but, you know, accidentally went out and ran and won a, an American field event. So there's all different types. Yeah. And the rules are all different. And also, once my dog is to the stage, how do I take him to a finished, in my particular area of interest, state? Mm. Um, and so we have, yeah, it's, it's very intensive and over the years of working with George, I think he's learned us and our customers more mm. and he's really learned that, you know, the team that we have and the customers that we have for the most part are very hands-on. So we do a little bit of classroom, you know, and then we'll go out and do a bunch of applications and then we'll come back and say, okay, what did we learn? What questions do we have? You know, what hangups did you see with each one of the dogs? You know, how did they perform? What do we need to work on? Yeah. And taking it forward that way. So it's, it's become very intensive hmm. um, and very engaged, if I can say it. That I, was, I was just going to ask you if, if, you, if you're finding a lot of your customers are, are more or wanting to be more hands-on kind of DIY themselves. Why is that? Do you think, is that just a generational thing? Is that just the um, customer base? You know, it's interesting because I got asked that question multiple times over the last 10 days. And in really? thinking about it, I was like, you know, because when I got my first French Britneys, I didn't even have a thought in my brain about having Trinity Kennels, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it was actually, they were, after they were two years old, buddy of mine asked me, why don't you have a litter so I can have one? Cause there <laughs> weren't many around at the time thought kind of popped into our head of, Hey, let's put a name to this and make it something a little bit more permanent. Sure. Uh, and it's just grown since there. But yeah, so back in that day, we did, now we went to some seminars, you know, when I was young, I went to a Delmer Smith seminar, Delmer, sure. Delmer's still alive as far as I know in his nineties. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he's, uh, we, but we would go learn there and come back and do it ourselves. We had books, um, mm-hmm. you know, these things to teach us. And it's weird because back then groups of us would get together that were hunters and we would say, okay, let's train our dogs next Saturday to do whatever. Let's work on point drills. Let's work on retrieves. And we'd all get together and just kind of do it. People seem more afraid of that today. Mm. Okay. And I do smile about it because I've got five kids and I know you've got at least that many. Yeah. yeah. Uh, One more on the way. (laughs) That's what I heard. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Thank Um, you. But, you know, uh, I see a lot of people just very, you know, worried about what if I screw my dog up and I'm like, well, you know, you got all these kids. I'd worry more about screwing the kids up than the dog. The dog's easier to fix, you know? Um, <laughs> That's but, a good point. Yeah, That's a good point. Yeah. It's just kind of funny because people are very afraid of it. We had somebody at one of the two clinics and I won't try to get too specific, um, but always was, well, are we sure that's what's going wrong? Are we sure that if we do this, it's not going to, you know, mm. how do we better analyze? And it's like, whoa, you're thinking way too much about mm. this. You know, a dog is a cause and effect animal. Something happens. This is the effect. That's what they remember. Good and bad. So they kind of have two uh, photo albums in their brain, if you can say it that way. One is, I do this, it's a good outcome. The other one is, I do this, it's a bad outcome. Whether it's, you know, I go chase a skunk and I get sprayed, bad outcome. You know, uh, family leaves the pizza on the table and I can sneak in and grab a piece. Good outcome for me, maybe (laughs) not for the family, you know, but they make snapshots of, of good and bad. Um, and so a lot of 
you know, the learning is, Hey, just how do you give them the right snapshots? Yeah. You know, how do you teach them to win? Mm. Um, and which is very critical in the development of the dog because it used to all be discipline. You know, it sure. used to be at six weeks, you had to teach them to sit. And if they wouldn't sit, you'd smack them on the butt with a roll of newspaper and make them sit. Sure. You know, and then next week you do this and the next week and, but everything was discipline. Now we teach them all how to win. And, um, my daughter, I think took some videos. I haven't viewed them yet, yeah. but you know, we, we had one pup that a guy was picking up at the clinic. So kind of preemptively, we did the clicker work with him and had him doing some sequencing and, and some other things, you know, at 10 weeks of age. Mm. And I think people were just blowing How did you guys do that with a 10 week old puppy? Sure. You know, well, you know, in a 10 week old puppy, you're creating those images for the first time. So it's actually pretty mm -hmm. easy. Yeah. Because you know? again, it's, it's like you said, it's the good, good or the bad outcome. It's very simple, yep. very black and white for the dog. And, and if you do that with a puppy, now their brain starts to work like, okay, how do I find a, a good solution for everything? Mm. So, um, you know, they're out in the field and you're, you're tapping them a little bit saying, Hey, you know, you're, you're going the wrong way. They don't look at that as a bad thing. They look at that as a marker to say, okay, I got to look back and see which one, once which way we're heading. Kind of like a cue, a cue, just for something to run the cue off of. It, it's funny that you use that because pre-cue and cue is what we use to train the dog. So the pre-cue would be the command, you know, the cue is, hey, we're going to do it now. Oh, okay. And away they go. Oh, you wow. know, and they start to learn. Um, probably an easy way to say that is when we're, we first start training them with, we, we do a clicker program, we call it. I don't know if you've been introduced to that or not, but. I have you know, used they, it a little bit. Yeah. When they. So we start out with a kennel. When they go in the kennel, we click a clicker that helps imprint in their mind. Something just happened. And then you give them a treat, which tells them, oh, the happening was good. And you start doing that. But you don't use any commands in the beginning. Okay. You just get them to do things. And they learn that if I start to work, I start to win those. This is positive. So you start with a kennel. Then you add a place board. And then you might add something for them to touch or something that they have to climb up on. Mm. And they start in their brain to process that that positive message of I can win mm. so that when they're out in the field, it's, it's not ever looked at as, you know, whether you're, you know, you're talking to them, which we call singing, which is just making noise. So they know where you're at True. or whether you're actually trying to get them to do something different or you're trying to keep them from harm. You know, they don't get upset about that or freak out or run off versus coming back to you. They all know, okay, I got I just got to figure out what I need to do. And, and that will be my solution. Right. My positive outcome. So you're, you're, and you're kind of, it sounds like you're getting them to think through the problem, right? Yes. It's, it's not a do this or else it's, it's, you're kind of giving them, I don't want to say yep. a decision, but you're, you're allowing them that space and freedom to make a choice, right? Yep. So the sequence I was just talking about, we did that a lot with the puppy. We had a kennel a place board and something to touch, which was the bottle of water. And once you get them to do each one of those things individually, you start putting them together, but then you don't have, <clears throat> excuse me, you don't have to reward them every time. So what you do is you take them through the process and they might like running in the kennel the best. It's the most fun. So you don't reward them for that one for a turn or two. And then they'll stop and you can see them think about, okay, I got rewarded in three places. That one's not working. I wonder mm. which one will work. So they'll go try the board mm. and I get treated here. Nope, not the board. Okay. I'm going to go touch the bottle. Got treated there. Okay. Now I got it. You can also use it to do that with them in sequence. I've done this with young puppies before where I'll get three or four things in a row. You get treated after you do all four. Mm. So you run in and out of the kennel, run, stand on the place board, run, touch a bottle, run, jump on a box, and then come back to the kennel. When you re-enter the kennel, you get clicked and treated there. So it's wow. 
teaching them to think through it at a very young age. Yeah. And it's amazing how those dogs. So in this class, some people who were at the class last year with very young puppies are coming in in year two. And those dogs are so biddable. There, there is nothing that freaks those dogs. I was out. just going to ask. So like, so say someone's thinking through this and they go, okay, well, why? Like, what's the, what's the purpose of doing this with a 10, 12, 13 week old puppy? Yeah. So part of it is you add boldness and you add the will to win, we call it. So I know I can win. I just got to figure out how. And then that translates to your field trainings and you have a very bold puppy and they're not afraid. You know, they're not, okay, I go out here, I did something wrong. You know, boss picked me up, set me back or, you know, I got a little, little tickle on my neck. I wasn't approaching something right. Or I'm running to the road and I'm getting a signal from the boss that that's not the right thing to do. I got to stay away from that. All those things don't, that dog does not, is not fearful. They're mm. very bold. They just know I got to figure it out. Um, whereas we had a couple of puppies showed up where people took them home and they became the family house dog and probably hadn't seen much of the field since then. Their first time out at the clinic, you know, they don't even want to go into grass that's higher than four inches tall. Mm. They've not seen it. They don't understand it. It makes them nervous. They haven't been clicker trained. You know, they haven't been worked through the, the starting processes of a puppy. And so they're scared a bit of everything. Now, we showed people again, that's it's not the end of the world. You can pull them out of that. So we took some of them in and actually did clicker training with them. We took some of them, you know, and we would put birds down for them. So I learned when I go into that tall grass, good things happen to me. I find birds, you know. And so the next time they see tall grass, they're much less tentative. And by day three, they're charging into that grass because mm. they know somewhere out there in that grass is a bird. And I'm going to find it. That's but, awesome. Yeah, well, it's all it working through the positive versus, you know, I look back at all the years I've done this and I can remember guys literally putting a check cord on their dog and dragging the dog along through the field. Mm. And the dog didn't know what the field was. He didn't know there was birds out there. He didn't, you know, sure. to drag him along just freaked him out even more versus yeah. taking a step back and saying, okay, how can I teach this dog? This is a positive thing. Yeah. I got two more questions on this, if you don't mind. So well, one, is there a point where, so with a, with a treat and reward, so clicker treat, is there a certain age that you'll take that, that, reward away and just use the clicker is there kind of like a sweet spot of where you'll take that away or is that depend on the dog it's very dependent on the dog um we do start to do it especially when we start to get into um what we call questing runs so you, you take a young dog out to the field we usually do it on a four-wheeler some people do it on horses you know but you take them out and you're trying to just teach them to go out there and find stuff preferably birds but let's you know line them up at the edge of a field and let's go. And they, they take off and they're off hunting and they're having a good time in the field like that. We usually don't use clicker or treat at all. Now there's some reasoning for that. First of all, it's not, uh, it's not predictable enough and you're not always as close as you'd like to be mm -hmm. young dogs like that may bust the birds the first time. through. Sure. you know, you just want them to go out there and be happy and go chase birds and have a good experience. And then we start to form, um, the structure around that. Um, so from then on out, we don't do much with clicker, uh, and treat training unless we see a dog. Um, so there was one dog there this week that the dog was really smart and actually had good instincts, but for whatever reason was always fighting its owner. So it was just like, if you saw the owner handle, it was just like this constant battle. And, you know, so we're trying to teach the owner how to get the dog out of that. Um, it was very interesting how well that dog would respond to us 
it took several days for it to stop fighting its master, mm. you know, and by fighting, I don't mean fighting and all that, but you know, sure. we say kennel, the dog would run in the kennel. She'd say kennel and dog would, you know, <laughs> go the other way. I was like, sure. well, what is this? Sure. Um, so you can go back and, and one of the ways we help break that dog, that is you did, we did some quick treat. Okay. Went, okay. We're going to teach you something new here. We're going to teach you, start teaching you how to win. This is a positive. This isn't a fight. You know, we're in this together. Um, and I've got a couple of dogs uh, that I'm going to be working with that just because of personality and I don't feel they're bold enough right now, I'm going to take them back to clicker for a while mm, okay. just to give them fun times. I'm getting treats. This is good, you know, and, and rebuild their, their confidence, um, and, you know, and, and help them to move forward yeah. faster and as a better dog. Okay. That's fascinating. Wow. So you'll kind of bring them back to that place. If you kind of need to get, get some good, good feelings, get some confidence yeah. back in them. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I was going to ask is, have you always been doing this, the, the kind of this training method, the clicker, the, this training philosophy that you were in and using now, or, or did that come later? Like, tell me a little bit about that. It came much later. Um, my, my first training manual was uh, Richard Walter's book, Gun Dog. Um, there was nothing out there when I got, you know, my, I do not come from a hunting and fishing family. So I'm, I'm the anomaly in my, <laughs> my lineage. Um, and so when I got my first one, it was like, well, I need to figure out how to do this. And so I bought a book and started reading through it and training. And, and then, uh, like I said, went to a couple of Delmer Smith seminars over the years but a lot of those methodologies, like I was saying earlier, are very discipline oriented versus how can I win oriented. Not that a dog never gets in trouble, but we try to avoid the negative interaction and try to keep it as positive as possible with them. And that's just a different mentality because the, the dogs would do it, but they would not necessarily always do it willingly, mm. you know, whether that be the retrieve, whether that be you know, the recall methodology, whether that's here or come or whatever word people use, they just don't, you know, they, they will fight you on these things versus just looking at uh, when we're communicating, which we don't use a lot of vocal communication in the field, but when we are communicating it, Hey, something's going on here. I, and I need to respond positively. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's changed a lot. It was probably, I think it was four years ago. We, we had heard of George Hickox, actually, one of his DVDs, decided to send Josh out to a seminar that was nearby. And Josh came back and said, I really think this will work with our dogs because the French Brittany is very people-oriented, you know, and it likes, you know, I, I don't want to use the wrong term, but it really likes the positive reinforcement, the interaction with their human. Um, on the flip side, they're not as as uh tough as some other dogs if you want to use that word they can't take a lot of physical discipline now some can every dog's different but sure. as a breed as a whole there's you know they don't take that as well as you know especially your english pointers and, and some of your setters sure. uh, out there so it's just been what we found is a much better training methodology for us and for our breed yeah that's great that's great you know and a lot of this is this from george's uh playbook yeah it, okay. this year was interesting for me because the first couple of years he was teaching us a lot so much of what he calls the foundation okay. and in my brain i've trained a lot of dogs i'm always like okay but what else this can't be it you know <laughs> it's kind of like you're somebody like, pours pours a basement to the house and nothing at you know nothing, nobody else shows up put up walls or anything you're like well 
get the basement thing, but where yeah. do we put the where's the rest stuff? of it? Where's the rest of it? So yeah, this year we did a little differently rather than have George come in and out because of the high price of fuel and so on and so forth. He said, well, it doesn't make any sense anyway, because I'm going to be gone for three days. I'll just stay the whole period. So we had the, the first, uh, first uh, Upland Academy for the advanced group, you know, and spent that with George, but then we spent, you know, Monday through Thursday with George, just us. Mm. And we started getting so much more into some of the tools that, you know, we had found and used over the years before, but we had never seen those as part of George's program earlier. And what started that whole thing was the conversation around, okay, I get this. What's next? Mm. You know, I need to know how do I take it from here to finish dog in your, inside of what you think is your program, George, so we can do a better job of that. Yeah. But it ended up being a lot of the things we had done before anyway, but with the foundation of the positive reinforcement, it was a lot easier to work with the dogs towards those ends, you know, that's fantastic. Uh, and your, your question about, do I always have to give them a treat? No, if I'm teaching them to, whoa, if they do a good job, I can just, you know, scratch their back a little bit, rub their head. If they like that, you know, and yeah. now dog's happy. I did right. Boss yeah. gave me a pet. So life's good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's fantastic. Can you, yeah. can you, sorry, we're spending more time on this than I thought, but this is actually really interesting to me. Um, you guys seem to use a lot of the place boards and mm -hmm. is there, is there a particular reason for that? Like, are you seeing again, different benefits long-term of, of using place board or is it just a tool to, to help build that boldness? And no, there's a lot of, there are a lot of benefits because you start out with it just being one of the tools in clicker training, mm -hmm. you know? So for them to get up on a, on a board, it's kind of funny because when I think about it, almost everything that we do in clicker training can translate to later training. So you start them out on the board with just not, no command, just get them to go up on the board, click them and treat them when they're there. Then you start putting a word in place for them to associate a command with that action. Mm -hmm. So then we start saying place, place. Um, when they touch the bottle, we say touch. The kennel is obviously kennel. Um, but as we do that, as they get more mature, then we start to lay the woe word in over it. Mm -hmm. So and add the duration to the amount of time they stand on the place board. So we had the 10 week old puppy this weekend. He would probably stand on that board for 15, 20 seconds, you know, so, and not all the time. He's a puppy, sure. but you could get him to do that. Now, if you waited much longer than that, he'd start barking for his treat and eventually jump off. <laughs> but you can see what happens by adding the duration, add the duration, build, start to build in the woe command. Well, then if you, you know, if you're first doing, I want him to point in the field and he knows woe on the board bring the board out there and set the board in the field and put your scent birds beyond it mm. and have them come out and get on the board, give them the command. He already knows something good's going to happen to me when I do this. And in this case, he gets to see birds. Wow. You know, so you just keep associating it forward. That's fantastic. And then does that make, because George, he, well, he'll use the barrels, right? When they're older. Yep, we use for, the barrels breaking. Well. Okay. So does that make that transition even smoother as well? Yes, it, it does. If you have a dog that's that you get into the program enough where it will stand aboard, it's not hard to translate that to standing on a, a barrel. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm used to having to go stand still somewhere. Now the barrel's just kind of like the next level of that. And we don't I don't use the barrel for a lot of intense training. I use it more for styling up. Mm -hmm. So getting them to stop having happy feet when they're on the board, you know, um, getting them to hold their head up. So, you know, I'm really pointing because I smell something, not because I see something or uh, I'm trailing something, um, you know, and just having them get into that mode of used to being handled um, and stand still. Mm. 
you know, which That's is hard great. for some dogs. Oh, sure. <laughs> some are like, Oh, get me out of here. Yeah. On a move, especially young dogs. Oh, well, that's awesome, Jeff. This is, this was really good. Um, talk a little bit about, you may, you may have shared this on a couple other podcasts here and there, but give us a little history of Trinity Bertans. Why did you start this? How did it come about? Why the E, why the EB? There's so yeah. many breeds out there. Why the EB? Uh, the EB was a providential thing. So I had tried several dogs. I actually owned a GSP that was a national futurity winner one year. Um, didn't have the personality and such I wanted. We had Josh was a baby at the time and I knew I wanted my dogs to interact with my kids, you know, and that dog was not the right match for that. So then I sold it, got a couple of American Brits, uh, one from Texas and one from Iowa, the one from Texas for some crazy reason ran a lot bigger. Um, but you know, had the American Brits and was enjoying them. Uh, and one Friday night, got a call from a friend of mine. Um, I basically grew up on his parents' farm because they were outdoors people. So every weekend I could get out there, I'd be out there hunting or fishing or doing something. And he, he was in the Iowa DNR, a guy named Joel Vance, who you might know that name, mm. um, was in the Missouri DNR. Joel was coming up to hunt. And Joel was also a writer at the time for Pointing Dog Journal, um, Gun Dog shooting sports. Mm. He wrote several articles for several magazines. So anyway, this guy's in a panic. He's stuck in an airport in a snowstorm. Can't get back. Asked me if I'd take Joel hunting. I said, sure. So the next morning I met Joel out of his folks' house. We get to the field and I let out my American Brits and he let out his French. Oh, so I turn around and I'm looking at those dogs going, well, they, they look really similar, but they're, you can, you know, there's some different colors and there's some stuff going on here. And, so I just, you know, we started talking about it right then or what, what's the difference? Why do you have them? We're, you know, all these things really enjoyed hunting behind him and being by the dogs for the next three days. And, uh, at the end of the time, Joel asked me, you know, Hey, what, what do I owe you? What you took me hunting for three days. I really appreciate it. You know, what can I do? And I said, uh, there's only one thing I'm going to ask for, but you can't leave until you give it to me. And I said, it's a phone number where I can order some of those. <laughs> and uh, he gave it to me. And that night I ordered my first brace. Now, for me, I was a hunter first. Okay. So the dog served the purpose of being my hunting companion, you know, train them to point, retrieve, do you know everything I wanted in the field. So that's where I started. And like I said earlier, it was several years later when a friend of mine said, well, why don't you breed? Mm. you know, your male to your female so I can have a pup. So bred them. And then kind of as an afterthought, I was like, well, what do I do with all the other puppies? <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so quick got some ads out there. They sold relatively quickly. And that was kind of the beginning. And uh, wow. we've got several customers on fifth generation puppies right now. And we've got an order for a six. Oh, wow. Us, so they've had that many dogs from us over the years. So. Wow. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. that's, that's so fun. Um, I, I mean, we can't, we can't not talk about moose and <laughs> I mean, this dog, I've, I've followed his story pretty closely. Josh and I've talked yeah. a lot about moose, but, um, tell us, tell us a little bit about this moose dog. Tell us, I guess, catch us up a little bit on his, his story and okay. just kind of how he's evolved over the years. Uh, moose is a fun story because Josh, when he was in college, wanted to get what he really considered his first EB, which is a female that we have. Uh, she's one of our yard dogs now, but her name is Tess. Um, and Josh went off to college, took Tess with him, but then he went to be a missionary and dumped Tess off with us. Um, came back, got his first uh, pastor role in D.C., 
And um, first part of that didn't really have a dog out there. Tess stayed with us. And then he decided, I really want a pup out of her. So we bred her and he was going to, I still remember this day. I want a tricolor male. And we bred <laughs> Tess, who's an orange and white, to a black, orange and white male. All right, great. And I'm whelping the litter and I'm sitting here going, okay, tricolor, turn it over female. Tricolor female. Everyone that came out was a tricolor female. Last puppy to be well was an orange and white male, which is moose. The only male in the litter. Oh, wow. The only orange and white. So wow. it was kind of a crazy thing. So moose was a surprise slash accident, if I can say it that way. <laughs> um, yeah. And he's been a very special dog. He, you know, I always talk about heart in a dog. People call it drive, whatever. Moose was born with a hunt drive and, and desire that. I've probably only seen one other time in the 33 years with the EVs in a dog. And uh, that became very evident when he was five months old. Um, we use the term walkabout if they we lose a dog in the field, which we don't do very often. But uh, Josh was hunting with a couple of friends and, you know, birds were getting up and people were shooting and everything was going on. And the next thing you know, moose is gone, <laughs> gone, gone. Um, can't find them. They're walking the crick lines. They're trying to figure it out. They're driving around in pickups. Uh, sun setting. Oh, no. They're now in panic mode. And so I got a call. You know, this is what's happened. What do we do? I said, leave a jacket or something out in the field um, just in case he comes back, which is an old coon hunter's trick. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they came home that night. Josh obviously didn't sleep all night and everything else. As the sun was coming up, we were back on the road to where they were hunting. And we're driving by the place where they, you know, I, I was driving the truck. Josh was on the passenger side, a couple of people were in the back. And I said, so where were, where did you park the truck? And he said, well, right over there in that cornfield. And I said, oh, right where Moose is sitting. He was like, what? <laughs> and there's that Moose just waiting for us to come back. Again. Oh gosh. By the jacket you know, or no? Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. Wow. You know, right in the same location. Wow. So anyway, uh, very special dog. Uh, in fact, one of the things, uh, he's got a lot of drive. He's got a lot of run, um, which is not normal in the breed to see in a lot of dogs. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. You know, there's other breeders out there that have some dogs that have a lot of drive as well. Um, and what I mean by that is to compete at higher levels. So yeah. Josh was getting very frustrated early on with Moose because Moose would run a perfect, you know, trial, but the judge wouldn't give him the win because he felt like he ran too big. Mm. Well, okay, but the dog's in control, found the bird, held it. What do you want? You know, it's sure. the dog's kind of natural ability. Sure. Um, and so when Josh moved uh, out east, there weren't many of those field trials out there. So we started going to field trials where they did different things. So uh, in the AKC world, they offer, you know, hunt tests, hunt, foot hunting trials, but then there's also the horseback. And so kind of gradually went up the steps and Moose kept doing better and better. Um, and that culminated last fall and another, I'm just going to call it a surprise miracle. <laughs> he was down with uh, the pro that's handling him in some of those trials. And there he's at an American field now American uh, trial. American field trial is like a whole nother level. Yeah. So this is where, you know, dogs like Bolt and, you know, tried and true and all these dogs run. It's, it's the big dog world. Yeah. Um, and the handler called and said, you know, I'm going to be here for a week. And if I don't put him down ever, he's not even going to get trained all week long. Cause I can't train on the trial grounds. Hmm. He said, if you want me to, I can 
you know, I can enter him in and throw him in a stake and, you know, at least he can get out and, and practice, so to speak. Sure. Uh, and he went out and won. So first time an EB has ever done that. And, and he I, beat, he beat maybe. some big running pointers too, didn't he? Yeah, he did. I uh, saw, yeah. Josh told we me about that. We George a lot in the last 10 days. We're the first people to ever, you know, breed and train an EB that outperformed the Hickox pointer. So that is crazy. Two of them is in there. crazy. Um, now that being said, Moose is not the normal dog. You know, like I said, I've seen two like that probably in, in the entire time. Now I like that. You know, some people, honestly, we kind of breed for two different types of dogs right now. And I'm trying to find where the center line is in those two mm-hmm. types. But a lot of people, you know, hey, I want Fluffy, me and the wife and the kids. And I want them to hunt twice a year. Okay. That is not Moose. <laughs> <laughs> that's very different. And Moose is a good house dog, but that is not him. You know, yeah. he, he would go crazy if that's the level of activity he had. Yeah. On the flip side, you know, we have a lot of people that want to hunt or want to learn how to hunt test or trial or whatever it is. Yeah. And we direct them more to, you know, to the lineage that Moose came out of mm. um, and really trying to just always breed a better dog. You know, yeah. how do we just keep doing that? So, but yeah, he's, he's definitely special. Um, he, yeah. That, that little dog, it's always fun seeing him stacked up he, in a, <laughs> in a placement and you got, he got a couple big old white beautiful pointers and then there's there he is little moose <laughs> the blue yeah, ribbon on him and he is <laughs> well and you know it, it's kind of funny because josh gets excited about that too and then it's it's like okay remember this is the second one i've seen like this in 30 right, years. right right not the norm we're not gonna have we're not gonna have 20 of these running around but, but that that kind of makes it cool though is, is it does it, you know it's it's not like every dog is like this that's that shows something special yeah it does that is really sure. cool. Do you, do you kind of have any dogs that I guess, I know you said you've only seen two really, but that are maybe potentials that are you're excited about right now? Yeah. So we've, uh, as we breed, and I know we're going to talk more about breeding as we go, but as we breed, I'm always trying to look at how to, how do we make a better dog? That's always my goal. And I've talked to a lot of people, talked to some of the brightest people in our breed, in my opinion. Um, talk to people outside the breed, the George Hickoxes, you know, some other folks that are in, in bigger um, arenas, you know, that see a lot more dogs and, and study a lot more lineages just than the EB. You know, how do we do that? How do we make that go forward? And we have started to put into place the program. So how do I evaluate a puppy? How do I evaluate a litter? Mm. Um, how do I see what this dog threw? Where does that take me in our breeding program? Is that a step forward? Mm. Same step. We ever see a step back, we're done very quickly, um, you know, and just keep moving that ball forward. And I don't, uh, I want to say too much about that at this moment, because I know you want to ask me some questions, but that's kind of how we breed forward. So out of that right now, um, we've got two young females and we've got some friends that have some males out of a breeding we did uh, last fall that turned out phenomenal. Um, I think a majority of that litter would have, I don't know if they would have moose's potential, but def- definitely much closer to that. If I can say it, that <laughs> sure. Um, we have a dog, Moose's daughter Ani, um, who I absolutely love, and we'll talk more about her in a little bit. But she's she's got the fire in her belly. Mm. We just never really went to do that with her. Um, but the more I work with her, the more I see she's got that type of desire. Where if you had stretched her out in the beginning, she she could have. Um, maybe not as big as Moose, but darn close. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and personally, I'm not so concerned about, you know, 
Moose naturally will run as far as you let him. Now he, he, he likes that game because he can hear you. Mm. They call singing to him while he's running. So he knows where you're at, but he can run as much as he wants, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Um, and not all dogs will, will run that same distance. On the flip side, what I'm looking for is what we call questing in a young age. When I drop that dog on the ground and let it go, I want that th- that dog to just be on fire to hunt. Yeah. Um, I like to use the term, you know, angels in the home, devils in the field. And, and I mean that I sure. want them to be in the field, tearing it up. Yeah. Um, I don't, I do some judging and I, you know, there's times where I get frustrated when I judge a whole battery of dogs and most of them are within 20 yards and just mm-hmm. kind of plot yeah. along. And it's kind of like, that's all you want. You know, I can, I can send you to some other breeds. <laughs> sure, I sure. won't name those breeds right now. <laughs> right, right. Not that I don't love those breeds, but that's, you know, yeah. it's kind of like having a plusher. Yeah. You know, and so if you want to cover more ground, have more fun, get more points out of your dog, which, you know, a lot of us enjoy that as much as everything else, you know, in the hunt. You got to let that dog be that dog. You've got to teach yeah. them to go out there and explore. Um, and then if you have to, if you're saying, hey, I'm going to go hunt you know, the grouse woods in Wisconsin, I want to keep my dog close. You got to know how to tighten that up. Sure. Um, which can be done as well, but I would rather tighten them up. My guy asked me that. Why do you always pick the boldest puppies? Yeah. And I said, because I'd rather rein a horse in than have to whip them to go. Yeah. I said, it's always hard to push them out. It's much easier to pull them back into you. Yeah. I've, I've heard that many times for some old, from old timers have been doing this longer than I've yeah. been alive saying that is such a key thing. And, and people need to just let them, let them be puppies, let them be bold and go explore and not yeah. you know, calling them back to you every, every couple seconds. And, you know, so that's, that's yeah. a true statement. Um, one thing I was going to ask you before we get into the breeding, I know we keep, we keep dancing around the, <laughs> the breeding question, but um, last thing I was going to ask about like you getting into trials and it sounds like you've done some judging it as well. Yeah. What was, what was that drive for you to get kind of go down the trial route or the hunt test route? Was that really just because of the breeding you were doing? You wanted to kind of start to see and compete um, with your dogs or what was that for you? Yeah. Like I said to you earlier, I'm really more of a hunter than anything else, you know, um, love to hunt, big game hunt, small game hunt, bird hunt, love to fish. Yeah. So for me, it started out as, as a hunting thing. And then as we went along down the pathway early on, I did a little bit of trialing, dabbled in it a bit. And then later on, as my sons grew older, they were like, how come you don't do that anymore? Cause I had drugged them along some trials when they were young. I was like, well, you know, five kids didn't have a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, didn't want to be gone every weekend. So sure but they wanted to go and try to get into it again. And then we were started finding out, Hey, this really gives us a level of evaluation mm. of how we're doing compared to other kennels, mm. you know? So if you're on the ground comparing all these, you can say, okay, yeah, we're where we want to be, or, you know, we like our dogs better than what we see here. <laughs> sure. So we know we're at least on the right pathway. Yeah. Um, and that just kind of let us, you know, let us forward. And I think now we're probably even more selective about that than we were a few years ago. Mm. A few years ago, we might've had six dogs between our handling and our pro handling, you know, on the ground at any point in time. Now we're much more selective over, okay, who do we think, you know, really has the potential that we're looking for. And then do we want to trial that dog or not? Mm. We may, we may not, you know, some of the evaluations we did last week with George is, Hey, I think these two could, so let's keep pushing them in that direction. You know, this one we're going to hold back and turn into a hunting dog, mm. which is not a bad thing. It's just you see different qualities in them. So, you know, those two will be the easiest to work with to the end of trialing. And this one will be easier to work into just a hunting dog, yeah. you know, and so you do that with them. 
That's great. And the last thing, are you guys, are you running in is it just AKC horseback trials, walking trials, UKC? Um, we, uh, we do UKC walking. Um, we will do, uh, I'm trying to encourage more of the AKC walking. I, you know, I just think that's a venue that's not used enough. Mm. Um, and the, the horseback we're pursuing somewhat, although that's really going to be only for an extra special dog, like a moose. Sure. Um, I look at that as being a bit outside of what we want to do in our breed. Um, and you know, I, I get the phone calls both ways. I get the phone calls, Hey, that's awesome. Congratulations. And I get the other phone call. What in the heck are you doing? We want foot hunting dogs in this breed, you know, and it's kind of yeah, like, yeah. and you know, I try to explain that, Hey, let the dog be the dog. Sure. You know, there'll be a day in Moose's life when he slows down and we hunt behind him. Sure. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> right. will happen. yeah. Um, and you know, some dogs never get that kind of drive, but yeah. So, That's you know, good. I really wanted us to gravitate UKC bought American field. So their whole game is going to change. Right. We don't know what that looks like yet. Um, <clears throat> but figure out that game, figure out the AKC walking and then, we have something that's extra special. We'll move into the horseback. That's very cool. I love it. Well, um, breeding big old, big old hairy animal of, of breeding. And I know there's <laughs> lots of, lots of different ideas and philosophies and methods, I'm sure. But, um, give me, give a, give me an overview, I guess, a start of your, um, yeah, like your breeding philosophy. And then we'll get a little, we'll dive a little deeper into some things. Okay. Yeah. Like I said earlier, this is, so the rabbit hole concept comes from Alan from Wonderland. Our last child was a daughter. So, um, you know, I got to do all the Alice in Wonderland fun things with her. And that's where the term came from is if you pursue something down that hole, you don't know where you're going. Um, breeding can oftentimes be that way. And what I've learned as a breeder over the years, early on, we didn't have a lot of gene pool. So you kind of had what you had. There weren't that many dogs in the States. I mean, between myself and Iowa, Joel was in uh, Missouri a friend of mine was up in South Dakota. That's all the guys I knew that had them mm. for a while, you know? And as that pool grew, we started to get more options. You could breed different ways. You looked up different lines. We started importing some dogs from France, you know, just trying to continue the evaluation. And um, growing up in a farming community, knowing how, and I'm just going to use cattle people, but, you know, how they pursue a line. Mm. Why are you pursuing that line? Well, it produces the best. It's got the best calving ease. It's got what, you know, whatever their list of criteria is, that's a line that really appeals to them. Um, and they might cross that out with something, you know, a good friend of mine, and uh, he's now my son's father-in-law. You know, he, they raise some cattle and they cross some Angus with some Gelby, try to get out, you know, the best producing, the mm. best meat they can get. Um, so you look at those things and you say, okay, what is it that we're really after? You know, Okay. I really like a bulldog. I like a dog that will hunt with me all day. Um, you know, and I want a dog that's very biddable, so easy to train. And in the beginning, you know, I really like colorful dogs. I like the black and whites and the tricolors and so on and so forth. And so I want to throw some color in there as we've gone along. Um, and Josh teases me about this all the time, more and more when we evaluate the dogs, the orange and whites end up winning, mm. you know, so they end up, <laughs> better structure, better style, better boldness. So as we keep going forward, we keep seeing that. Um, and so for us, then we settled in on, you know, we narrowed it down to a couple of lines and we were really looking at having both and then having them be complementary. And now we've kind of gotten down to one line that we will bring in outcross into, but keep a focus on one line. Mm. Um, doesn't mean, you know, 
Titus to Tess to Moose to Ani. It doesn't mean, you know, trying to peg it that closely, but saying this bloodline mm. is the one we're, we're pursuing. Kind of like and, your, sorry to cut you off. It's like kind of like your main line you're saying. Kind yeah. of staple. Okay. Yep. That's our foundational line that we're holding on to and saying, this is, we like these dogs and we like what they produce. And we like, you know, and some friends of ours have some of that um, line running through their kennel. So we might use their stud on one of our females or whatever, but staying as close to that line as we can. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting. You get into this and I knew uh, this quote was out there, but I couldn't find it. I finally found it actually early this morning. Um, so Wright was the guy, you know, Wright COI came from um, Dr. Wright. And, you know, he always thought about the two consequences of inbreeding. Now, I'm not saying we inbreed, but just his theory around this whole coefficient of inbreeding thing was one is positive because it gives you uniformity and prepotency. Two is it can be negative because you can have loss of vigor and loss of fertility. So those are the two main highlighted things that he did in all his studies and all his work. And I think that's very, very true. Um, you know, but if you know that those are the things that are out there, the, the consequences of that, then it's how do you manage that? Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that does. That does for sure. Um, okay. One of the, one of the things I think is, will be an important question for me to ask before we, we go deeper with COI, can you explain the, the basic difference of, so a term is called line breeding, right? Yeah. So line breeding, I guess, what is that first? Let's, let's name that. And then how is that different than COI? Ah, okay. So, um, I'm going to throw one in there on top of that. Okay. okay. So you have inbreeding, inbreeding, breeding, extremely tight. So okay. it is line breeding, you know, kind of 2.0, if you want to call it that. Mm. So, but some of the best dogs ever produced have been produced by doing that because mm. the positives far outweighs the negatives weighed the negatives in those particular breeds. Okay. So for example, um, way back in the French Britneys are the, a uh, dog named Minnie, and she was bred twice to her son, which sounds like incredibly close, but produced some of the best dogs ever. Mm, wow. Okay. Um, so somebody took a gamble, tried it, produced amazing dogs that then continued to produce great dogs yeah. years afterwards. Uh, the same things have been done in pointers. I know they've been done in setters, you know, sure. where somebody takes that gamble because I see so much that I really like that I come back. Mm. And I'm going to get as close to that as possible and see if it still improves mm. or do I go off the rails, you know, do the, the main negatives that Dr. Wright talked about pop up or am I still getting the positives? Mm. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and so, well, you know, inbreeding is really when you get that close okay. line breeding is saying, um, so let's just say 20 years from now, somebody looks back and goes, man, I want to get more of those Trinity dogs. Well, the Trinity dog doesn't mean one or two, you know, we've, we've had and created a number of dogs. So you can go out there and say, okay, well, I like that one from that line. And I like that one from that line. I like that one from that line. I'm going to put that together because I really like that line. Mm. So they're related, but not so tight that you're really calling it in. You know what I'm saying? So the, it, within the same, let's just call it a family, I guess, yes. in, in the Trinity family, you might use dog X with dog Z they're they're somewhat related but there might be a couple generations between them yeah okay. yeah Gen couple generations or you might have taken a parent from the same line that hadn't been in that line before we just did that we kept two puppies out of it and the rest of them went to you know 
close customer friends okay. um, where those dogs were just amazing, but it was a dog that we knew had the line, the blood of that line in it, okay. but we had never bred to him before. You know, we knew his lineage. So we said, Hey, he was actually 11. I think when we did the breeding before he gets too old. We want to grab one breeding out of that and see what it makes. Well, it worked. Wow. It was just the perfect, you know, going back a little farther and grabbing that, bringing it back up into the current day stuff. Yeah. Really made the current day pop again. So, so in, uh, I guess, uh, to be more example. So you could have, let's say, let's say there's a, I don't know, a, a dog name, whatever, <laughs> Joe, there you, you could use Joe's like great, great, great grandparent, maybe and yeah. read that dog. back. Okay. That would, that would be considered line breeding. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Fantastic. not as close. And you know, it's, it's an, it's a very interesting game um, because then you get what I call is, is the people that are running away from those things. Mm. Okay. So a lot of the people that are very focused on COI, oh, I want to have a low COI. I want to have a low COI. Well, what do you get then? Okay. Well, now it's totally not related. So we have no idea. Uh, okay. So I, I, oh man, I really like my dog, Joe. We'll go back to your Joe dog. And, <laughs> you know, Bob over there, man, his Katie, she's beautiful. So let's just breed him. Mm. Okay. And then I get the calls. I bred these two dogs. They both look great. Puppies vary in size all over the place. And I get two underbites and one's got a white patch on his eye, which is a disqualifier in our breed. What happened? Mm. Well, I call those, you know, the alphabet soup. Because they weren't connected at all, right? They're not connected at all. You throw everything in a pot and what comes out, you might get some A's, (laughs) you might get some Z's, (laughs) you know? So just know that you have no idea because you have no consistency in your breeding. Yeah. That's a good analogy right there. <laughs> yeah. If you look at the cattle guys, they never go do something like that. Yeah. You know, they might go, wow, that, that was not quite working. You know, but there's this other bull from Germany that's of the same line. Let's try him. You know, it's never, Hey, let's just go totally off the reservoir. Let's go get a Buffalo <laughs> you know, and, and bring it in. It's been done. I know, but you know, sure. it, it's like, no, you, you don't think that way. How yeah. do I, make this to make the best dog possible. And I'll be honest with you, since we have really focused, refocused on that, yeah, the results have been amazing. Really? I mean, we had dogs at this clinic that were puppies last year. So they're just coming on a year. And I mean, honestly, other than the guys listening about, Hey, just take a breath, slow down. Don't try to make your dog, a you know, a, a finished dog by year one that you don't have to, you know, yeah. they don't need that as a dog and it's harder on them. You know, but some of those dogs are really ready for that type of training, Yeah, you know, and they're not even a year old yet. Wow. That's incredible. Okay. So there's, so there's inbreeding we talked about, there's line breeding and then where does COI fall and give us an overview. So COI is, is kind of a measure of that, if I could say it that way. So it's what COI is talking about is how closely related are, are the dogs when you breed. Okay. So I actually went and found this a while back and I printed off a copy so if you have siblings, so both parents um, are the same, your coefficient of inbreeding would be 25. And this is in rights calculation. There are different calculations for COI as well. <coughs> and it goes down from there. Now, if you, a really interesting thing is he included in his study, if you could do a self-fertilization or clones or identical, identical twins, his opinion was that it would be a 50% COI. Mm. Okay. So you'll hear, and I see on the internet and all these other things, about, oh, I want to make sure my COI is below 10 or below five or whatever. Well, that just means you're getting farther and farther and farther away from having anything related. Mm. 
So we just talked about the alphabet soup reading and getting closer and closer and closer to it. I have no idea what I'm going to produce. Mm. They might be fantastic. They might be terrible. Yeah. You know, they might be both. Now, people will say the same argument if you get too close in, in, in what I would truly call inbreeding or maybe even on the outer fringes of, of line breeding, you might start to see some things you don't like. Mm. You know, but what that's telling you as a breeder is that's too hot back up, you know, so don't do that close on the flip side, running to the other end of the spectrum gives you, you have no idea what you're getting. Mm. And that's what most people forget when they start just chasing a low COI, you know, what you're, you're what getting really farther from what you like and, and the traits yes. that you, you want to see. Yeah. Um, and COI is, is an interesting measure as well, because and I tried to find this article before we talked, but I, I didn't get a finger back on it. But one of the guys that did a lot of study on this, and I've read the article multiple times, he said, COI is great as a predictor. Mm. So saying, hey, if I breed these two dogs, this is kind of how they relate up, how their relationship looks in a COI formula. That's great. Um, but think about your kids. Okay. Mm. Your kids come from the same lineage, obviously, you know, every one of them, same mom and dad, same mm. Same thing, everything, same, same, same. Do they all look exactly the same? <laughs> do they all act exactly the same? Nope. You know, do they all even have the same coloration? You know, eyes, you know, hair, so on and so forth. Yeah. It's, it's, so what happened? My COI not work? <laughs> Think about it in a litter of puppies. You know, and we see this a lot in the French printings because you got, get a lot of different colors. I have had litters where the liver and white, orange and white, black and white, and tries. Yeah. Well, how does that happen? If all those puppies COI is five, mm. you know, so there's a whole nother level of COI that you have to go into if you really want to understand it, but it would also be very expensive and, and <laughs> take a lot of time to do if you really did it. But every puppy theoretically has a different gen, uh, DNA COI. So what's wow. truly their makeup and how does it relate to other puppies? Wow. Um, and what this person was saying is in the studying they were doing, they were believing they were seeing anywhere from, in the same litter from like a 7% to a 20% COI in the DNA. Wow. Not in the calculation style. So not as a litter, um, not as a litter as a whole, but an individual puppy. Correct. Well, wow. correct. Which is why I gave the example of kids first. You can see it and you know it. If you have a bunch of kids, they, you know, I, I we had four boys first. Some people say they look a lot like brothers. Some say not really, you know, two of them had really blonde hair for a long time. Two of them didn't. You know, one's six, three, one's five, 10 or 11, you know, so yeah. there's different builds, you know, yeah. a couple of them are real thin, a couple of them are bigger. Yeah. It, so what happened? Well, that's the DNA makeup. Yeah. That's what happens there. Wow. So yeah, it's just very, very interesting. You know, as you, uh, as you walk through it, it's not just as easy of, if I just do rights calculation, I'm, yeah. I'm fine. That can blow a whole lot of things up. Now, <laughs> It can be an indicator. You know, if I'm a breeder and I don't know anything and somebody says to me, well, you want to stay below whatever number, I can use that to make sure I do that. But we still go back to the question of why. Yeah. Um, and a good friend of ours, a gentleman named Butch Nelson, who's been around dogs his whole life and been around EVs for a long time. You know, he was out this uh, spring for our spring trial series and got to spend a lot of time with him. And I had a deep conversation with him about this because my opinion is, you know, you should be line breeding. You know, doesn't mean you don't ever bring in something to loosen the line back up a little bit again. We need to do that. But what happens between the two? And he's done a lot of different types of dogs, you know, bear dogs, mountain lion dogs, bird dogs. I mean, 
he, he has been around it and trained about everything. He said, oh, he said, if you don't have a purpose in your breeding program and you're not trying to follow at least some sort of a lineage, it's not worth doing. That mm. you're just chasing, you know, it's basically like chasing the wind. You don't know what you're going to get. Even if you get it one time, you don't know what you're going to get another. Yeah. You know, um, a live example of that is one of the best running males in the nation is out there right now and beautiful dog. Uh, had the opportunity to judge him a few times. And, but I also know in the back of my head that as beautiful as he is, he's got a few siblings that aren't quite so much, mm. you know? So then your head goes into sure. okay, what, what happened with that breed. Yeah. Um, and so we get very specific, not only in the line, but saying, okay, but this dog in the line carries these attributes that we really like. Yeah. So we're going to add that one in, even if it's not of our kennel. Yeah. Okay. So, so COI in a summary of, of kind of a, a overview, it's kind of an in-between of a line breeding and inbreeding, right? Because it's, it's showing you. It's an how, indicator. It's an indicator showing you how yep. close you're going to get or how not close you're going to get. Right. Yes. Okay. Yep. And, and it, it's. Um, and like based on, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. So like based on rights calculations, what you mentioned, he kind of has a, a percentage, right? Yes. But then you as a breeder, you using the COI method, I guess you, are you kind of then experimenting? Okay. We're going to go a little lower, a little higher than yes. the range. Okay. Absolutely. And, um, I'm a little, so dog breeder pro is one of the products we use. We keep our dogs information in there and they allow you to go in and, and do, um, trying to remember if they call it sample matings or what it, you know, it's like a, Hey, if we bred these two dogs, what happens, which will give you a COI and some other things. And we use that a lot just to look at it. And I'm probably a bit riskier even than Josh's, but I'm, I'm doing that because I was talking about Bush who was encouraging us stay, keep doing this. You know, and he actually said to me, I think you're the only EB kennel in the U S that has this type of, of focus on doing this and making a better dog. Mm. And um, so with a lot of encouragement, as we pursue that, we do use it a lot. And we see, okay, that one we did, and that was great. Okay, now, do you dare take the next step is a question. You know, it's going to be a little hotter if you go back into that again. So do yeah. you do that? I like where I'm at. I'll use that male and that female again and just stay there. Yeah. Um, you know, and we've not done anything that's super, super close. You know, parents, you know, parents to offspring or siblings or anything like that. We've not done it. I'm not dared to yet, but it does encourage me that, you know, all these people that have been around it for a long time and are very knowledgeable are like, yeah, you've got to do what you're doing. Yeah. Or like I said earlier, you end up, you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. You know? I guess, can you give me an example of, uh, of, a, of a successful um, COI breeding that you did? Maybe had a little higher COI percentage. And what were some of the things, I guess, that you saw that, that you went, oh, that, I guess, first time, like, what was the goal maybe of a certain breeding? Yeah. And then what did you see that, that confirmed, hey, that was, that was what we wanted? Okay. So um, in our program, we've got some, some good looking females like them, but I always want some structure to my dogs. I don't like spindly legged, fine boned, because I don't feel like they hold up as well in the field. And that's my first goal is the field. Sure. So um, we were talking about this. Um, and, uh, we have a, we have a female that we really like, and she's prepotent, which we'll get to that in a minute. Don't forget to ask me about yes, that. Yes. Um, but we, Hey, we know she throws great puppies. So we go, we went and said, okay, what can we put with her 
that personally we could keep some females out of and hope they end up being what we want them to be. And, you know, like I said, some of our customers who have become friends that were waiting for the next puppy, the rest of them could go to them and we could keep an eye on it. Okay. So we can watch this as they grow up. What do they turn out to be? What do they look like? Did we get what we want? So on and so forth. Um, so we went ahead and did that. His name is Hank. It's some friends of ours from South Dakota. Home. And we uh, bred the two and, um, you know, very few times do I say lightning really strikes, but that litter's amazing. Mm. Um, in fact, we were going to go back to another dog uh, of the same line from the same friends, but not related at all, just of the same lineage. And we're debating now, do we go back to him or do we go back and do this one more time, mm. you know, just because of how good it's turning out. Yeah. Um, what did it give us? It gave us the build we like. It gave us more bone structure. And the interesting thing is Hank is a, I love Hank. But he isn't known for producing great females. But when we paired him with huh. our pre-potent female, the females are fantastic. Wow. Some of the best we've ever made. Um, and so we're really excited as we do things like that to say, man, that, that wasn't an overly hot, but it was hotter than some people would like breeding. Yeah. Um, but yet what it produced was just absolutely amazing. And, and you, sorry, you may have mentioned this. I was actually writing down pre-potency. And I hope I spelled oh, there you go. my outline. Um did you so the female that you bred with that with Hank? Did she have the bone structure you liked? Yes. Okay, so she had the, it. Okay, she has the bone structure I like. I wanted a little bit more uh, structured head on her, but she's she's probably my number one female right now in my kennel. Oh wow! Um, so really like her, you know, like her personality, like her drive, like her build, you know. So when you start stacking that up, now can we repeat that? Well, we did, and mm. we made it better in the process. So oh, wow really excited about that, that litter. Um, you know, and we just didn't know at the time, I really liked the dog and his lineage or, you know, I was kind of like, we got to do that before he gets too old, just to at least see, yeah. is it what we think it is? And were, were, I guess were your hesitations because it was a higher COI maybe than you? Um, yeah, it, it was a little bit, a little bit higher COI. We knew, we knew what we were going back to. Yeah. Um, you know, and the other thing is, like I said, he had not, he had not produced, as many great females as you, you produce a lot of great males. Um, and, and I owned one for a significant period of time and still have people come back with those puppies saying, Maybe these males are such great dogs and, and they're nice, you know, big bone structure, good heads, nice dogs. So yeah, the hesitancy was, do we try it? Don't we try it? And I really wanted to, so we went and did it. Yeah. Um, and it's not crazy, you know? Sure. It's nothing like I'm getting close to 20 or anything like that, but it was just, it felt right. Yeah. Well, we can get the right attributes if our theory behind her prepotency was correct and it showed through. Okay. Prepotency so. is the next question, but first off, what, with that example, again, what was the risk factors that you were? Well, the risk factors, through? you come out and you don't get consistent size. You mm -hmm. don't get the head structure you want. You don't get the personality you want. You know, uh, I only know Hank from being around him some, you know, I don't know him overall as a dog. Um, so, and, you know, you have to consider all those things. You really don't know until you breed him, but it's proving out the theory of even being related, even though if it's not, you know, tight, tight, but being related and having some of the same lineage allowed us to really throw up some great pups. That's cool. That's cool. Okay. What does prepotency mean? So prepotency is something that I rarely hear about anymore. And I heard about it from, you know, the guys when I was young, you know, the Delmer Smiths, um, 
trying to remember the name of the trainer that was out in Nebraska right now. It's slipping my mind, but those guys used to talk about prepotency. And it's really funny because when I went back to find this quote uh, from Dr. Wright, uh, one of the things he mentions in that quote is prepotency. And I didn't remember that. Mm. Um, But what prepotency tells you is I can breed this dog to other dogs and it will always throw better Mm. forward. It will take what it has and carry it forward. You know, and the dogs coming from it will be great. So um, George's dog, Bolt, which just got retired this year, you know, Bolt's got seven or eight, you know, um, pups, dogs out on the circuit now, which is unusual for one sire to have Mm. a crew like that going forward, which would lend me, I haven't studied Bolt enough, but would lend me to believe he's probably got some prepotency in him. Mm. And people don't talk about that much anymore. I don't think, because I think we get all wrapped up around COI and where's this, <laughs> where, you know, and, and I like COI as an indicator, but don't make it your whole game plan, mm. you know? So how do I use other things? So right now we have two dogs in our kennel um, and which are, is the most I've ever had in the kennel at one time. Um, but Ani, who we bred to Hank that we just talked about that letter, every letter out of her, is good dogs. I mean, it's, you know, and I, I'm sure even in prepotency at some point in time, I'm going to see something I don't like, but it hasn't happened yet. If I breed her to a dog, it comes better. Wow. You know, it, it carries forward. The same is true about moves. Mm. And I didn't even, I wasn't even thinking about prepotency anymore until we had an accident after the South Dakota uh, nationals a couple of years ago, got home, had an old dog running around the yard, liked her bloodline and everything else as well. But she had had a few litters for us and then just stopped going in the heat. We didn't know why. We didn't know she was sterile. You know, that said there wasn't anything wrong with her, but she never cycled. So we get out of the truck. It's cold, snowy, everything else, and, and let moose out. And it wasn't 30 seconds later, we hear this yell. And so we're figuring, you know, you know some of Moose's stories. Moose is in trouble again. We got to go bail him out of something. Right. So we go running around the side of the shed, and here he was tied to this old female that had basically become our yard dog. Oh, wow. I was like, that's weird. You know, <laughs> I hadn't even seen her go into heat for a long yeah. time, let alone thought, ah, nothing will ever come of it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, unpacked everything. Josh got in his truck, away he went. That was it. Didn't yeah. think a whole lot of it. And about 63 days later, I'm walking through the shed <laughs> one morning and I'm thinking, I hear this squeaking noise. Oh my gosh. And I go over to her kennel and here she's all wrapped up in a ball and there's three little puppies. <laughs> Those pups came out amazing and wow. she is a female that i really like her bloodline but i you know i wasn't always fond of her structure yeah. little slight of a head little fine bone and one of her sons that we use for a stud now is i mean he is a big structured male wow. um you know, and and that's when the light first on went on in my head i read that to that I get that wow so now i'm going to try to breed moose to something else what do i get and he continually <laughs> does the same thing he throws uh, what I call forward. He takes his genetic pool and it gets better when you breed him with something else. And it almost doesn't matter what. Wow. So, um, so that's, that's a, so prepotency is more of a term you use. It's not a formula. It's not, it's, it, it's just I, saying. I have not found this. a formula yet. Uh, if, <laughs> if I knew of one, I would be using it. Not <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, it's just kind of one. something you, you say, Hey, moose breeds to whatever, and it's going to yep. be great. Okay. And I remember, you know, the guys like Delmer and those guys talking <clears> about <throat> whenever they got a dog like that, they used that dog to the full extent because they knew that dog was going to make better dogs than even what they were. Wow. You know, and, uh, so, so here's yeah. the question. Here's the question. Have you bred moose to Ani ever? No, because that's a father daughter. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
And so, and the interesting thing is, if I look back at Moose's mom, if we had tracked it at all, we probably would have felt the same way about her. So okay. something is carrying forward, you know, with that line. Um, but yeah, wow. we're, we're excited about it because I've never had two at one time that were truly pretty potent, you know, in my mind yeah. where I could just breed them to anything and the pups are going to come out fantastic. Yeah. Um, but you also have to be very careful with that because now what do I do? You know, do I, <laughs> you know, I'm not just breeding any dog to Ani, you know, yeah. Moose is a little easier because he doesn't have to carry the pups. He can breed, you know, as many as he wants, but very purposeful breedings. And when I, yeah. I think about how do I use Moose, they're very purposeful breedings. They're not, yeah. hey, let's just breed them to Sure. You're, you're being very intentional with that. Yeah. Um, what, I, I guess, what is um, males versus females? What is your take on, I guess, the importance level of, of a female versus a male? Like a lot of people I hear, well, oh, it's all about the male. It's all about the stud dog. They, they, I don't know, or throw the best or whatever. Like, what is your take on males versus females in, in your breeding program? Um. It's interesting because I've done reading on it where a lot of people will say, you know, up to 60% of the makeup of the litter comes from the female, mm. you know, so it's not even a 50, 50 split. Some, some will say even higher. Um, if I go back, you know, genetically, I think sometimes it does depend if it's a male or a female, what carries forward, you know, so which are they carrying the X or the Y forward and how is that influencing the development of that puppy? Mm. Um, I, Oh boy. To me, it's, you know, what has carried forward the best other than in Tess and Ani has been the males, hmm. you know, um, not scientific, just, sure. just what you've seen. And, yeah. What I've seen with those two females, um, I would say that their genetics are dominating the breedings, which is probably why they're throwing forward. Better dogs. Sure. Okay. Okay. So, so it sounds like you're. Again, tell me what you you're using, but you're not just using COI and that's it. That's your only indicator. You're kind of really doing a very holistic, it sounds like evaluation of your, your breeding program. Is that true? Yes. Even inside the lines that we like, you know, we found that one dog back in that lungage does not produce as nice of pups as if he's not there. Hmm. So when we're looking for the pedigrees, we try to stay away from that dog. You know, and, and some of that you start to find as you do the repeat readings. So I will start playing with it with the concept in my mind. Then we'll look at the COI and then we'll go from there into, okay, what attributes are we trying to bring forward? So does this breeding look like it has that? Okay. okay. And if it does, then we proceed forward. Um, but yeah, we were just a bunch of us were together for 10 days and that was one of the hot topics, mm. you know, um, especially with the Ani Hank litter now a uh, friend of ours from uh, North of us here, a couple hours has one of those males. So now you got that male available as well, mm. you know, and you start to have these different things available that all fit together with the puzzle really well. <laughs> okay. How do we, how do we do a better job of building up to the next generation of dogs? Yeah. Um, with, with COI, talk to someone, let's say someone out there, maybe they're starting the kennel or starting a breeding program. Like, where do you start? <laughs> like, where would you start with this? And, and how do you kind of start getting some of these formulations and, and that? Yeah. So, um, so just so everybody understands, cause we keep saying COI coefficient of inbreeding. So how closely related are the dogs that are being bred? And 
you know, the first thing I would do is just try to go out. I mean, we're blessed right now. We type in anything in Google and go find it, you know, go out and do some studying on what does it mean? What does it say? Um, but you also have to form some opinion. Okay. Because there's people out there in the dog world that will say, Oh my gosh, you know, your COI should never be above five. Well, that just means like you're not very related. So what are you trying to gain by doing the breeding? Um, there's other people that are like, Hey, if you're not pushing the envelope upwards of 20, you're, you know, you're not breeding close enough to get the goodness really out of the dogs. Mm. So you got to take opinion out of what you're reading and try to get to data. Mm. If I can say it that way and just understand it. Um, and I, you know, in my brain, I don't know that we really understand the DNA data yet. I know there's some people out there that are chasing that, mm. but if, like I said earlier, if you throw a litter of puppies and they're all different, which they all always are, what is, you know, it, something's not the same in the coefficient of inbreeding, which leads you to the DNA coefficient, mm. which tells you exactly how much pulled through each puppy. Um, but I think, I think COI needs to be understood. But like I said earlier, it's an indicator. It's yeah. not, it's not an absolute at all for us, you know? And if I actually had the right dog and things were great and it wasn't closely related, but for some reason he, you know, looks like the dogs we want, everything else, would I ever try that breeding? I would, yeah. but I would also have in the back of my head that I got to watch that breeding just as closely because it might throw everything good and bad under the sun as well. You gotcha. know? Um, so it, and, and breeding really, in my mind, is a thought process. It's developing a program. It's saying, how is this working? It's throwing it off some of the smarter people, mm. you know, that have been around longer than we have and say, sure. hey, this is what we're doing. Does this make sense to you? And, and does it hold true to what you've done? And, you know, give us some suggestions. What else should we look at or try? Or, and, you know, we've got a lot of affirmation um, about people just saying, you know, at least you're, you know, even if something doesn't turn out perfect, at least you're doing a process to try to get there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a process. It's yeah. going to be different than other, maybe someone else's, but it's, it, you're, you're putting in the intentional work to try to take all the things you're learning, all the COI line breeding, your opinions and what you see yeah. and kind of pushing it together. sounds like, and, and making your own judgment based on yeah. what you want. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, if someone, if someone, you know, pinned you against the wall and said, all right, what's the sweet spot? percentage for a coefficient inbreeding what what was your, what's like this <laughs> i know this might be a tough one for you this well this is because um well if i had known you were going to ask me that one i would have looked up about 20 of my favorite dogs and their colis this morning uh but you know um to me i think part of it will depend on the line in relationship to coi and part of it will uh, just have to depend on your level, level of comfortability. Mm. So, you know, we've done some COI breedings that were, you know, up above 10%. Okay. okay? And we have not run into an issue. Okay. Now, that's not saying we never will. We will mm. probably at some point in time do a breeding and go, oh, we can't do that anymore. <laughs> and, you know, that, that was too close to the, to the sure. edge. Um, but I think it's much above the 5%. You know, okay. if you're at 5%, I was just looking at uh, my little cheat sheet here, you know, when you get down below 6%, you're like half grand uncle to a half grand niece. And so, mm -hmm. you know, half first or second cousins, that type of thing. And you start getting those really low COIs. The breedings that I've seen out of those lead me not to have any desire to do that. Hmm. You know, um, just, just because there's not enough connection. There's not enough of those yeah. traits that are going to carry over. 
I mean, we've helped some people get their kennels started. We've worked with people in their kennels over years. And so we've seen a lot more litters than just ours. And when I think back on those litters and I see what people have done, um, I tease some of the younger guys, it's quit chasing the shiny penny just because mm. a dog won last week doesn't mean he's going to add anything to your breeding program. Mm. You know, you got to evaluate much more than that, get much deeper into it. Um, and, but seeing all those litters has also allowed me the opportunity to say, you know, okay, you're trying to keep that COI as low as possible, but look what you're getting. You know, you got a great big puppy and two little tiny ones and the rest of them are kind of in the middle, mm. you know, uh, you're getting underbites, you're getting, whatever, you know, too spindly. They're not, they're not built well enough in my opinion. And if you're not, if you don't know those things, you don't know what you're breeding for, then how are you ever going to get there? Mm. You know, you just don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. Uh, and when you say what you're breeding for, do you mean basically whoever's doing the breeding, whether it's a kennel or whatever, having a focus goal in mind, like, Hey, what do you, what are you going to do with these dogs? Is that what you mean? Yes. And I don't mean just this litter now. I mean, what, what is your view? Where are you trying to go? You know, so for example, right now we're collecting moose. He's only, I think he just turned six last week, but he's six years old. So, you know, some people might say that's a little early, but we really like what we see and what he's produced. So we're trying to make sure that we can keep that, that gene pool around as close as possible for as long as possible. Um, what's, the, what's the purpose of doing that? Well, we know when we breed moose to somebody, you know, Puppies come out better. Structure comes out better. Drive comes out better. So why would we not? Yeah. You know, so in my brain, it's almost the opposite question versus just saying, you know, oh, I know people buy tricolor puppies. So I'm going to breed this tricolor male to this tricolor female. All you're chasing is color. You're chasing the wrong thing. <laughs> you know, it's just not a good place to be because what genetically are going to be? What's their hunt drive? You know, is there any structural issues you know, all these things need to come to play and be thought about versus just random breeding. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Oh my goodness. My head is about to explode <laughs> in a good way, in a good way though. This is, yeah. this is so good, Jeff. Uh, what are, what are some, uh, some litters you have maybe coming up this year or even in a couple of years that you're thinking through that you're, you're excited about? Yep. Um, we're going to breed a young dog. Um, whose name is Rhea. She's from France, uh, back to moose. That'll happen sometime this fall. Um, Ani, we're going to be breeding either back to the litter that just produced a bunch of great dogs or to a related, um, but not same male named Jim. So that'll be another litter. And, uh, we'll keep pups out of both of those litters. I know we will, mm -hmm. you know, there'll be litters that we take farther down the pathway, do more evaluation, more training before we sell them. Um, so we know exactly what the litter produced. Mm -hmm and what we want out of the litter. So those two are coming up. Those are going to be fantastic litters. Um, we've got some young females coming up that I'm really looking forward to um, breeding and seeing, you know, hey, this breed produced a really nice looking, good personality, great drive female. What does she throw next? Mm. Um, and then we're also going to go back and, um, you know, we've got, it's, it's an interesting line because out of the same line, you can get some dogs that are just, so full of drive, you know, they just can't hardly stand still in life. And then, and the whole line likes people. They mm -hmm. like their people. And then we get some of them that are just much calmer, you know, but you turn them loose in the field and they still will go after it. They'll still do everything we want them to do. And so trying to cross those two things that we see there inside of the line mm -hmm. and read that. And I think those will be some really nice dogs as well, because I think it's just, 
you know, we've learned enough to evaluate enough to be able to do that and get yeah. the outcome that we're starting to be real confident in our outcome. That's fantastic. And are you doing more of, of that where you're keeping puppies for a longer time before you're selling yeah. them? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, so a couple of things on that, you know, we went and bought dogs from France for several years, um, two males in a row that had a level of hip score and pen hip that we thought was a little bit too high for our liking. Hmm. Um, so pass them back on. They're both doing fantastic. I'm happy to hear, but you know, just not for the breeding program. Brought in a female from France. Uh, she was too small for my liking. Um, and passed her on. Now, this little one we've got right now, she's a little bit small again, but her structure isn't small. Mm. Um, and she comes from an interesting story. We were supposed to get her, she was only the female in the litter, but the owner keeper and the owner had a life emergency happen and ended up calling us on a spur of a moment saying, would you still be interested? And we said, yes. And okay, she's on the plane, go pick her up in, you know, eight hours. Wow. <laughs> so oh gosh. It was, it was kind of a rush deal. Wow. She turned out really nice. Got a ton of drive. Wow. Just loves life. Just one of those dogs that can't get enough of life, you know? Yeah. So going to breed her to moose uh, to get that to happen. And so, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a lot of that going on. That's exciting. Well, Jeff, um, this has been fantastic. Um, I, uh, gotta get going to work here pretty soon, but I have a couple, couple more closing things for you, um, as we, as we wrap this up. And, uh, I just want to say thank you just for sharing all the the level of detail and just, the um, again, just this knowledge and wisdom. I really appreciate when, when someone can really be intentional with whatever they're working on. That's so such a broad thing in in all of life, but, um, I know I really enjoy that. I think the listeners will enjoy that as well. So thank you. Um, talk to the, talk to the new Upland hunter out there, talk to someone who's listening to this podcast and maybe they're heading into their first, first season of hunting. Um, maybe they're picking up their first bird dog soon. What's, what's a piece of advice that you would, you'd give them? Um, if you're looking for your first puppy, I would look for, um, breeders that have purpose. Um, it's really interesting. A guy told me at the clinic, he said, I buy puppies from you because you guys never have puppies. I was like, what? And he was like, well, what I mean is I can call other breeders and they go, oh yeah, I got six out of the backyard that are four months old. Okay, why do they still have four at six months? Was it that you're training them, you're evaluating them, or you just didn't sell them? You don't necessarily want to be buying there, you know? So look for a good breeder, find a good breeder um, and, and work with them on what you want. You know, hey, I want, a, I want the boldest dog that you've got for sale, or I want somebody who's not quite that, got that much drive because this is what I want to do with them. Just be honest with your breeder. And then once you get the puppy, get started. Um, you know, I would definitely, you know, give us a call. Uh, George Hickox is on the road a lot and I won't give out his phone number, but you know, <laughs> go get one of his DVDs, but get started on training that puppy immediately. Um, but then don't push it too fast. You know, we live in a drive up window society. I want, you know, a one-year-old dog finished. I don't have any of those. You know, and I won't push a dog at that age to be finished. And so take your time with your dog, be patient, continue to work with them on positive reinforcements and you'll end up with a lot better dog than than if you try to rush things and do it through a disciplinary method. Oh, that's so good right there. (laughs) Just don't rush it. (laughs) So many people. And I was guilty of that with my first dog. My first dog I got, I was, I felt I was always behind and, oh, he was six months old. No, he's not doing this. He's not doing this yet. And it, it takes time. It takes, I think, getting through that first dog to realize, okay, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to screw that dog up. You know, just yeah. take your time. And that's, that's key. 
A um, couple rapid fire questions for you as we wrap sure. this thing up. Uh, these are kind of fun. So you just kind of give me your, your off the cuff answer. I might throw in a couple extra ones as well. So, all right. <laughs> for you, Jeff, what came first? Uh, the gun, the dog or hunting? Hunting. Hunting. Okay. Yep. okay. Uh, favorite breed besides the Epignol Breton? Ooh. Um, I'm going to give you two really different answers here. Uh, I do like pointers, you know, um, just because of the high tail and the intensity and so on that they have. Sure. And, you know, now, not going to be a pointer breeder, so don't take that the wrong way. <laughs> um, one of my sons wanted to get into his own breed, and he started with wire hair pointing Griffons, hmm. and those are wonderful dogs as well. Oh. I have been so impressed with their personality, their drive, um, you know, how easy they are to train because we do some training together. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, really neat, really neat breed as well. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, okay. Back to the EB now. Um, yes. <laughs> your color gets talked about so much and people will, I'm sure will call you. Josh has told me they'll call you and say, Hey, I just want to, you know, try color or something. What is your favorite, uh, coloration of the EB? Uh, my favorite coloration would be a black, orange and white. Try yours of black. Now, okay. You come to my kennel right now. I'm trying to think if I even have one. My son, Zach's dog, which isn't in our kennel, but we hunt with him all the time. It's the only tri-color uh, dog I have right now. Okay. Well, and what is the most requested color that you get from clients? Black tri. Really? Yep. Wow. Yep. And, and, you know, and we're very honest with people. You know, uh, I had a person call right before the clinic, you know, hey, can I come and get a black tri-color male and just go to the clinic? <laughs> no. It's like, why not? And I said, it's our not Toys list, R Us. Yeah, our waiting list is forty some people long right now, and if you want a black tricolor male, it, it'll be longer than that. <laughs> I said, you're talking a year, year and a half out. He's like, holy crap! Well, you know where I can get one to still come to the? Oh, I said, I don't. I, why do Why do people get so hung up on color? I is don't know. Just for because that's because what's in their mind and what they want. Yeah. Or, well, and oh. I think you know, I get it. You know, they're pretty people sure. who buy horses, so sure. I want this color of a horse, whatever. Yeah. Um, we've gone so much into the functionality of the dog. Mm. That those are the things that stack up for us. So we've had litters that have been very colorful, but we evaluate every pup we keep by eight weeks on a checklist of things that we want to evaluate, you know, and then we will evaluate them again for another eight to 10 weeks after that to evaluate capability. Um, and at least nine times out of 10, the orange and whites come out ahead. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, and it's kind of blown my mind. Cause I was always like, why does that make a difference? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's going to make them find birds the, better if they're, <laughs> yeah, that's what the scores tell us, you know? And oh, that's, I, I always laughed at that. I, I remember hearing yeah. you and Josh talk about that on another podcast. And I was like, why is that such a thing? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's oh, just crazy. That's so funny. A uh, couple more for you. Uh, your favorite bird to hunt and why? Uh, my favorite is probably quail, just because I grew up with pheasants and quail. Mm. And then quail all but disappeared from our neck of the woods and mm. finally starting to make a little bit of a comeback. I just think they're a very challenging bird to shoot, but they're a lot of, if you have a lot of them around, they're a lot of fun as well. You mm. know, you can go shoot a bunch of quail in a day and get a lot of good bird dog work in and everything else. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, what gun are you carrying into the field and why? Yeah. So for, I just retired 
a Mossberg 500 that I bought when I was 13 with my newspaper route money. <laughs> wow. Is that a pump? Um, uh, I do. I just also sold, I had an over under, uh, a TriStar. Um, I do. I've got a lot of guns. So okay. what one do I carry? Boy, I will tell you this, uh, the Upland gun company, I'm working with them right now. Uh, I'm going to get at least one, if not two custom guns made, because I've learned a lot over the years about a gun has to fit. Why did mm -hmm. I carry, especially a Mossberg 500? I know people will make fun of that number, <laughs> but for that many years, it worked and it fit. Yeah. You know, and several of the shotguns I have right now, they stay, you know, in, in the gun safe because they work and they fit. Mm. So, um, yeah, head down that pathway. <laughs> That's so. cool. That's cool. Um, and then our last one, beverage of choice after a hunt. Oof. Um, you know, it probably depends on the day, the time, the weather, <laughs> you know, uh, after, after, doing 10 days in 90 plus degree heat, you know, uh, a cold malted beverage came, came nicely. Um, <laughs> when we were hunting grouse in Wisconsin and it was zero degrees, you know, then either a coffee or an old fashioned, you know, when you get <laughs> there you go. warm it up one way or another. Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> but yeah, that, that would be, that's it. good. That's good. Jeff. Well, awesome. Um, I know you guys have been, uh, been a supporter of this podcast for a long time. So thank you for yes. that. But for someone listening, um, what's the best way to get in touch with you, Josh, your kennel, if they have questions, yep. or want to reach out. Um, we're on Facebook as Trinity Bretons. Uh, you can get on our webpage um, and, uh, under Trinity Bretons as well and find all of our information there. Uh, email is Trinity Bretons, B-R-E-T-O-N-S at gmail.com. Um, and multiple of those things have both Josh and I's phone numbers. So, and if you give us a call, we don't answer. Just say, Hey, I'm a dog person and I want to talk to you. We'll get back to you. <laughs> That's awesome. I love the reachability. Yeah. Also the website, I told Josh this last time, the website you guys redid a couple months ago is, is, is very nice. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah. We redid really it. We, we needed to. So yeah, it looks great. We've been around a while. Yeah. Yeah. It functions a lot better. So yeah, that's right. I, I enjoy it. Good. Oh, well, Jeff, thank you again, sir. This was, uh, this was fantastic. I might even break this up into two episodes and, uh, this, I think, uh, we'll, we'll all walk away learn something from this. Oh, good. So, good. All right. Thank well, you we... so much for what you're doing for the Eflin game. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Jeff, you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that's a wrap of episode 56 with Jeff Ryder of Trinity Bretons. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time and breaking down all things related to breeding, COI, line breeding, methods, development. Um, really, really insightful. Um, I know I've been very interested in the, the breeding process and some do's and don'ts and, and what it all means. So thank you for um, making it understandable for a lot of uh, myself included and a lot of the listeners. Hey guys, don't forget to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, just started a YouTube channel not too long ago. I have a couple videos up there, including a review of the Final Rise Sidekick Fest. If you're interested, head over to YouTube and make sure you are subscribed. 
Don't forget to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Currently, we're at 140 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Uh, once we get to 200, I will be doing a new giveaway. So we got a little ways to go. Um, head over to Apple Podcasts. Uh, again, five-star rating system. And then uh, leave a review. Uh, love, love reading uh, those and the impact that this podcast has had on some of you. So thank you for those that have left one already. Hey guys, uh, season's just around the corner. I hope you're getting excited. Hope you're, uh, you and your dogs are geared up and ready to go. Um, it'll be here before you know it, guys. I'm super excited. I hope your summer is wrapping up well. And uh, I will look forward to talking with you guys next week. Remember, until next time, go put some miles on those boots and follow your favorite bird dog. Take care.